0: that we invite to open our hearts and open our minds to know you better and to love you better. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. It's good to be with you all this morning. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving weekend. And as Tony said, this is kind of that transition uh, service in in between Thanksgiving and Christmas in which we're moving away from Thanksgiving and towards Christmas. And uh, and what we're going to talk about this morning I think works well in that transitionary period. We've just come out of a time uh, in which we spent this weekend probably with our families, with people we care about, or our friends. Uh, and we're going to move into a season where we're going to continue to kind of focus on, on that, uh, right? The, this Christmas season is about, is about family, it's about being with people we care about, It's being whether, whether it's family or friends or whatever it may be. And so what I want to share with you is, this morning is a, is a passage that's kind of been on my heart for the last probably three or four months. I, it's a passage that I had read over many times before that I had, I, I had re- as I read through the Bible, I've re- probably read it dozens if not more than that. Um, but it was one that I was was able to kind of brush over for, for most of of the times that I read it. Um, and But when I was preparing for a Bible study on Philippians, uh, this passage I read it again and, and it kind of got stuck. I don't know if you ever have that when you're reading through the Bible. You might be in a, with a passage and it, you read over it hundreds of times but then all of a sudden you read it anew and it just kind of lodges itself in there and you can't shake it. Um, that's this passage for me, and it's kind of been stuck on me for a few months, and, and it kind of started to shape how I see a lot of different things. So I hoped I can share it with you this morning, and hopefully it will do something similar to you as well. Now, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is Philippians 1, 9 through 11. So if you've got a Bible, open it to that passage. We're going to be there the whole time. Now this, this passage is relatively short. It's only a few verses long, but it's jam-packed. I think with insight and things that can really uh, impact the way that we that we interact with each other, that we interact with God. So if you've got your Bibles open, let's read Philippians one nine through eleven. And it says this: it "says This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight." So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, at first glance, you may understand why I was able to read over it so quickly for so long, but I think when we really start to unpack it, I think you're going to find some really neat things in there. And the passage begins by saying this. It says, and this is my prayer. Now, for that to mean anything to you, I think you need a little bit of context to go with it. First of all, we know that the book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul, and we know that the book of Philippians was right, written to the Philippian church in Philippi. Now, if you don't know, maybe you know some things about Philippi already, or maybe you don't, uh, but the church of Philippi is, is, a, is a unique and special church in the early church world. Uh, The Church of Philippi is actually kind of an early church all-star, if you will. They kind of were the ones that were getting it right. Uh, They were getting it more right than many of the other churches at that time. It also has an exciting history of how it even began. So in uh, Philippi, Philippi was kind of a minor city in the world for most of its history. It was actually founded by Philip of Macedonia, who you may know or may not know. Uh, You probably know his son better Uh, Philip of Macedonia's son was Alexander the Great. So you've probably heard of him if you've had any time in history. So the the city of Philippi was founded by uh, Alexander the Great's father, and it it became a medium-sized town in the Greek world because it had some gold deposits. Uh, But there was a major battle in history that kind of changed the fate of Philippi forever, and it happened in 42 B.C., See, in 42 B.C., Antony and Octavian, which you may have heard of them, defeated Brutus and Cassius. You may have heard of them as well. In the final battle, the final major battle of the Roman Republic. And actually, by many historian standards, the, the Battle of Philippi is actually the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire, where the, where the, the nation of Rome moves from the separated groups and bands into this united empire that essentially rules the world for a significant amount of time moving forward. The major battle that does that is the Battle of Philippi. Now because of that major battle, this, the, the city then becomes a major player on the world stage because of its gold deposits, but also because it becomes a Roman colony. And, it, and because it's a Roman colony, many retired army veterans go and they settle in Philippi to raise their families. Uh, now, being a Roman colony is a little bit different than being a Roman-occupied territory. So there, most of the Roman world is occupied territory, right? So if you are living in Jerusalem, you're under, at this time, you're part of the Roman-occupied territory, but when you're born in Jerusalem, you remain a Jew, right? You don't become a Roman citizen just because you're part of the Roman-occupied territory. Philippi is different. If you live in Philippi and you're born in Philippi, you become a Roman citizen. And so what we have here in Philippi is we have a bunch of retired army veterans, who are relatively wealthy, who are almost entirely Gentile, uh, but are doing this church thing well. Now, the, city, the history of the city of Philippi is kind of exciting, especially if you're a history nerd like I am, um, but it's also, uh, it also has a fairly interesting start to its church as well. Uh, we get a detailed description of how the Church of Philippi begins in Acts 16. Now, I don't have time to read Acts 16 this morning, but I recommend that you do, whether you do it tonight or or sometime this week. Uh, there's in the in the book of Acts we get we're told how the book of Philippi, or how the Church of Philippi uh, comes around. Um, I'll give you the 10,000 foot picture though. The church begins with a woman named Lydia. You may have heard of her before. She's a wealthy woman in the in the city of Philippi. She sold purple cloth. And she, uh, the church begins there, and she apparently does a very good job spreading the word after Paul is forced to leave Philippi. Uh, he, was, he was there, he got arrested, he ends up having to leave. And so Lydia works with her house and begins to grow this church. And then, like I've said a couple times already, then the church becomes an early church all-star, most primarily because of their generosity. As you read through the Bible, the Church of Philippi, on a number of occasions in the Bible, supports the beginnings of the church all over the ancient world and also the apostles, both financially and physically. They help Paul on more than one occasion. And even though they're a church consisting of almost exclusively Gentiles, they collect the largest offering for the Church of Jerusalem when they're star- starving. So you may be wondering, okay, that's great, history is nice, but what does that have to do with the passage that we're talking about this morning? And I think it's significant that when we understand where we're coming from, we realize what verse 9 means, the beginning of where we read. You see, verses 1 through 8 in the book of Philippi, Philippians I mean, uh, are essentially Paul praising the Philippian church for doing such a great job. He's praising them for their faithfulness to the gospel and to the church, He's telling them, way to go guys, you've done a good job up to this point. And so verse 9 is the first place that Paul encourages them to grow, or to improve, or to continue to work towards a greater holiness. And he says that his prayer for them is this. He says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge. So now you may be thinking, all right, I thought we were going to look at something that we hadn't heard a million times this morning, right? Of course we're supposed to love each other. It's kind of a big deal in the Bible. We've talked about it this morning already, and that is true. But I think when we slow down and look at this passage, it might be a little bit unexpected. You see, Paul's prayer is that their love may abound more and more, and we probably all get that. Those are characteristics that we would assume would be in the Bible. But if we were to ask our love to Uh, if we were to say that our love was going to abound more and more, what would be the primary characteristics of how our love grows? Right? So if I was to ask you, how would your love abound more and more? My guess is your answers would go somewhere along these lines. They say your love may abound more and more in our care for each other and how we take care of each other or perhaps in our feelings towards each other or in the way that we serve each other or in our kindness that we, that we aim towards each other, or our thoughtfulness, or servility, or our gentleness, or, or something along those lines. My guess is that our first impressions around what love ought to look like, would, we would use either emotional or action-discipline-based language, right? That's usually how we talk about love. When we talk about love, those those tend to be the primary, primary characteristics that we pull out. Now don't get me wrong, they ought to be. Love is a complex idea and all of those things are included. Right? When, we, when we talk about love, those things should be there. They should be part of the equation. But what we see in this passage is that Paul is focusing on something different, isn't he? Paul says, "...may your love abound more and more in knowledge." Now, maybe that's not as interesting to you as it is to me, but let me try to see if I can get you to come over to this side. You see, in order for us to understand this well, we have to understand what, word, what, what, the, what the idea of knowledge that Paul is using here. Because the word that we have for knowledge in this passage in Greek is the word gnosko. If you want to, if you, if you, maybe you've heard that before, maybe you haven't. It's the word gnosko or gnosis, gnosis, right? To know things. Now, it's significant because the word gnosko is not a perfect one-to-one match with our English word knowledge or to know. You see, in English, our word know can sometimes be a little shallow, right? In most cases, to know something or someone is to be able to intellectually recall them or facts about them or it, right? It's focused primarily up here. You know the answer to two plus two. You know who George Clooney is or who President Obama is. You can intellectually recall uh, the answer or the, their face or some facts about them. You know them or know it, right? In English, the word know is primarily focused on your mind, right? To know something is what you, you would immediately think that it would be in your head. But gnosco is different, To know something is to be able to intellectually recall it, but to gnosco something is to be able to both intellectually recall it and have an emotional connection to or experience with it. It's not just a simply intellectual recollection, it's a heart and head combo. If you don't, you can't have one without the other in gnosco. either. If you know something, you have to both experience it and feel it and know about it intellectually. It has to be both. Gnosko combines the two. So let me explain a little bit with an example. I know who the president is. But I don't Gnosko him at all. I have some intellectual facts about him. I know his policies. I've heard his speeches. But I don't have any true heart connection to him. And I don't have any real experience with him. I haven't met him. I think that would be interesting, but I have never done that. I know who the president is, but I don't gnosko him. Now, on the other hand, I do gnosko my wife. Now, in similar ways to the way I know the president, I can tell you some attributes about her. I can tell you that she has brown eyes and reddish hair. I can tell you that she's funny and intelligent. But I know her more than that. I can tell you what makes her happy or sad can tell you what makes her concerned or mad. I have experienced life with her. I Genosco my wife. I know her in both my mind and in my heart. So the question is, great, what do we do with that? And maybe you're already starting to put the pieces together. Paul's prayer is that our love may abound more and more in knowledge. In gnosco, and he he means that in two ways. He means that our love for God grows in that way. Paul is calling us to love God and more, God more and more, by gnoscoing Him more and more, both in our heads and in our hearts, to know things about Him, while also having a heart connection, experiencing life with Him. To love God is to know him more and more, gnosco him more than more. Paul's calling us to that, but he's also calling us to gnosco each other more and more. Now you may be able to beginning to see why I haven't been able to shake this passage. As Paul is saying, to love one another is to know one another. To gnosko one another to, is to deeply understand who each other is and where we're coming from. To love is to know. To gnosko. And to be loved is to be known. And if we stop and think about for that for a minute, it might make sense to us. Have you ever had someone in your life who really knows you? who you can share anything with, who you can talk to about anything, who you know will be there for you no matter what because you've been through so much together. How does that feel to have someone like that? What's it like? It's a pretty special thing to have people like that in your lives, isn't it? You see, these people really know you. And the feeling you're experiencing inside of those interactions is love. Now, when I was in youth ministry, I was, in youth, I was a youth pastor for six years. One of the things I most often heard from students who were struggling was, I, was something along these lines, I just wish someone really knew me, or some variation of that. Perhaps sometimes it was I, my parents just don't get me. No one understands me. No one can understand what I'm going through or what the thing, how these things have affected me or where I am in my life. It was some kind of variation of no one knows me. And so do we realize essentially what they're saying? If we take Paul's words here, essentially what they're saying is I wish someone really loved me. Now, whether that's an accurate portray- perception of reality or not is not the question, but it does make that phrase a little bit more weighty, doesn't it? You see, we live in a society that is starving for love. We're searching for it everywhere, and we're finding it nowhere. Now you may be thinking, now Brent, hold on a second, doesn't Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and all of these other varieties of face- social media still exist? Don't we actually live in a society that wants everyone to know everything about every little thing that we do? And in some ways, I understand what you're saying, right? There are people who will tweet their spaghetti dinner and so you can see what they're eating for every moment of the day. That's true. We do live in a society that wants us to know everything, but gnosco nothing. You see, everything we post on social media is manicured, it's prepared, it's prepped so what people know about us is exactly what we want them to, but it prevents us from knowing anything about what's really going on. Right now, we know each other better than we ever have before, but we gnosco each other barely at all. We live in a world in which we are constantly misunderstanding each other, in a world in which we are upset with each other for not really getting one another. But in many cases, it's because of the images that we are portraying to one another. One of the most impactful things anyone has ever said to me personally is in regards to this area. I was talking with a mentor of mine once, and I was expressing my frustration with some people in my life who didn't get me who, in my opinion, had a false idea of who I felt I really was. I thought I was this person, and everybody was perceiving me as something more like this. And it was interesting. My mentor looked right at me, and he said, Brent, you are mad at people for believing exactly who you told them you were. That was tough. (laughs) I mean, he was right, but it was really hard. You see, in my life, I had created this space in which I could, people could know me. Pe- very, a lot of people knew a lot of things about me, but very few people gnoscoed me at all. And the primary reason for that is because I hadn't let anyone into the space where they could. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is this, how well... Are we loving each other? It's the question that stuck with me when this passage got stuck in and it couldn't leave. I had to ask myself, how well am I loving those around me? And the second part of that question is, how well are we allowing people to love us? Or how well am I allowing people to love me? Another way to put that is, how well do we know each other? Why this was so convicting to me is I had to ask myself that question, Brett, how well do you know those around you? Not just know them, but gnosco them. I had to ask myself, how well do I know my spouse? I know her a lot, I gnosco her a lot better than I know a lot of people, but there are there's a lot of room for growth there. And perhaps you can ask yourself that same question. I had to ask myself how well do I know my family members? My brothers, my sisters, my parents. How well do I know my friends? Then to shift out of the family unit and I had to ask myself how well do I know all of you? How well do I know my church family? Those I am part of the body of Christ with. And we can all ask ourselves these same questions. But then it shifts more. How well do you know your enemies? How well do I know my enemies? Or those who disagree with me? Or those who hate me? Because the Bible is pretty explicit. I'm supposed to love them too. You see, Paul's prayer for the Philippian church, the first thing that he asks for the, church, uh, to the, ask the church who has gotten it the most right in the ancient world is that they will work to know each other more And more so that their love may abound. But we see here that knowledge isn't the only thing that Paul asks for. My prayer, he says, is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. See, we've already explored how part of being loved is being known. But we strive to arrive at a point in which we actually gain insight into one another. In other words, we seek to know each other better than perhaps they even know themselves. And honestly, isn't that how God loves us? God knows us down to the number of hairs on our head. He knows what we're feeling. He knows what we need. He knows us deep down inside. He knows us better than we can even imagine. And he knows us better than we know ourselves. If, part, if a big part of knowledge or a part of love is being known, then God loves us more than we can fathom. Now, obviously, we cannot love each other as well as God can love us. But we can gain a similar depth of insight. So, my wife knows me better than anyone else does, but she also has a depth of insight into my person that few other people have. There are times when, I'm, when I come home, and I'm concerned or frustrated or angry about something, and I'll begin to tell her about it. And there are times when she can look at me and say, Brent, I hear you saying this. I hear you saying that this is what you're upset about, but are you sure you're not really mad about this? Right? There are times in which I can come home and she knows me better than I know myself. I could have sworn to you that this was the problem. And she says, no, Brent, I'm pretty sure it's here. You see, She has a depth of insight into my person that sometimes can know me better than I know myself. She she has the ability to discern where the true source of my frustration may be coming from. Now, granted, she doesn't do it perfectly every time, and and the same is reversed when I try to do it that way too. We're all still flawed. We all still need to know each other more and more. But you get the point. We have to realize that Paul is encouraging us all to strive for that kind of insight into each other, to be because uh, there, there are people in our lives who know us well enough that they can speak into our lives in a special way. And he's calling us all to know each other that way and know God that way. Now clearly, we can't know better God better than he knows himself. But we can know him deep enough to understand how to live out his desires in, for, our li- for us in our lives in the many complicated situations we find ourselves in. Because not every situation we find ourselves in is explicitly laid out for us in the Bible. But to have a depth of insight into Jesus Christ lets us navigate those difficult situations anyway. So, as we've walked through this passage, we've seen that Paul's prayer for the Philippian church and ultimately us is that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. But two questions remain. The question of how we ought to to do that and why we ought to do that. Now the how is simple to understand. But it's incredibly difficult to do. How How do we let our love abound more and more? Well, the answer is simple. We discipline ourselves to do it. And this is tough because I've been there, too. We, ask, we have to ask questions that we actually want answers to. Now, my guess is that many of you are like me, that we, we have these general openings in which we say, we say to someone, hey, how are you doing? And we expect a general answer. I'm fine, how are you? And then I say, I'm fine, and then we're done. How many of you ever had that awkward situation in which someone starts to actually tell you how they are? Right? Ah, No, that's not the point. That's not what I was going for, right? You're like, no, I just wanted you to say fine and we move on. Well, if we're really going to strive towards the how of getting to know each other in this way, we have to ask the question and give give ourselves time to really listen to the answers. To ask the question intentionally, how are you doing? How are you really doing? Help me understand where you're really coming from. And then we also have to be ready and willing to genuinely listen to the answer. And that's what's so difficult. Because that takes time and energy. It requires a high level of humility and openness to honest discussion and even disagreement sometimes. Like we said, the concept is simple But the practice is very hard. It's a true discipline, and honestly, it's one that I'm not very good at, and probably many of us aren't very good at. Honestly, I don't think our country or society is very good at that. Now you may be thinking, Brent, it it would be impossible for me to know everybody in the way that you're talking about, to fully know every single person I come into contact with. We all have limited capacities for personal relationships in our lives, right? We can't love everyone out of the 10 out of 10. But the nice thing is that's not what Paul's asking for. He's asking that our love may abound more and more. He's asking that we will be constantly working on increasing where we are with each other. The goal isn't necessarily to have everyone at a 10. The goal is to be constantly moving. So a person that you love at a 1, the goal is to move them to a 1.5 or a 2. A person that you love at a 3 to a 4, you get the point. The, the, the command, the, the, what Paul is telling us to is, not to is not to get everybody up to a 10. And that's impossible. We can't do that. It's just to conti- continually keep moving. And so even though the how of loving each other is difficult... When we understand the why, we realize it's something that we must take seriously. Paul says that his prayer is that, the, that, is that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. But he goes on and says, so that, and here's the why, he says, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of of God. Why does our genoscoing of each other need to be ever-increasing? Paul says because it's the key to a healthy community. In this context, it's the key to a healthy church. You see, when we gnosco someone or their situation, we are then able to discern what's best, we have to know someone and what they're going through first in order to make an appropriate decision about something. Now, Tony has encouraged us often. He said it so many times up here, to lead with love when we speak, to, speak truth to each other. It's one of his phrases that you could probably write down in a Tony phrase book. He says it so often. Lead with love when we speak truth. And so we have to realize that if we as a community want to be able to speak into each other's lives in love, we must first genosco each other. And it goes beyond that. If we, as a community of Christ, want to speak into the issues of the world, we must genosco to the best of our ability the people whom we are talking about. You see, when we truly begin to know people, We are forced to engage with them as people rather than ideas or issues. When you know someone, it's impossible to view them as a data point or a statistic. That student that just can't seem to follow the rules or fall in line becomes Jim. That gay person becomes Sue. The refugee becomes, loses its data point or statistic and becomes a real person. The black person, the white person, the Jew, the Muslim, the immigrant, all of them lose their stereotype and become real people. And if we're going to speak into those situations in love, we have to start there But the why of this command is not limited to 10,000 feet. It applies directly to the community here as well. We're called to be the body of Christ. We're called to be diverse and different. We're all different, unique parts of the same body. But I had to ask myself when when this verse was sticking with me, do we function that way? Do I function that way? If I take an honest look at at my part in this community, am I growing God's kingdom together as one body or as part of separate communities within one building? I had to ask myself, am I intentionally working to bridge the barriers that separate me from others? Are we working to intentionally bridge the barriers that separate us from each other? And it can can play itself out in a lot of practical ways. Do people from Byron Center or Rockford or even out of the state feel as accepted in our community as those who are part of the Granville community? Do people who grew up up outside of the CRC feel welcomed as part of this community here because we're a CRC community? Do people who see the world differently or think differently or, or in, in, inter- interact with people or situations differently, do they find a home here as part of our community? Do we know where those people are coming from and their perspective on things? Now, as I thought about it, I realized that we, could, we have work to do, but I realized that also we're not unique in that. Ivan, Rest, This is not just an Ivan Ress CRC problem. Churches struggle to bridge these kinds of gaps all over the world, and they have been forever. That's why there are so many passages in the Bible that are about intentionally working through our differences and being united in Christ. And so the question we may have remaining is, how do we discern the best way to do this? So that we can do it in a way that allows us to remain pure and blameless until the day Christ returns. But Paul's told us, we allow our love to abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. We discipline ourselves to actually gnosco one another, to understand where those who are different from us are coming from, what they're going through, what their life situation is, who they are as people. We work to move someone from a three to a four or a one to a two. We ask ourselves, do I understand where the different people in our body are coming from? Do I know what it's like to be an outsider? Do I know what it's like to be a single mom or someone who's financially struggling? Do I know know what it's like to be someone who thinks differently or comes from a different place? Do I understand what their motives or presuppositions are? Do I understand why they think the way they think and who they are at their core? The question boils down to, do I know each other's person? Who each person is and what makes each person tick? Because if we want to love each other, like we are commanded to in the Bible, we have to strive to do this better each and every day. I have to strive to do it better each and every day. Because love is the foundation of the church. And knowing is one of the foundations of love, and honestly, it's kind of one of the biggest deals in the Bible. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-four, it says this: Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question: "Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law?" Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And knowing that, Paul writes to us so many years later, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this space that we have. We thank you for this body of believers, this community that we have. Lord, we pray that as we continue to move forward and try to, in our effort to grow God's kingdom, your kingdom, through being good disciples, we pray that your spirit helps us to know each other better. To love each other better by understanding each other more, by letting our love abound more and more in our knowledge of each other and our depth of insight into each other's persons. We pray all of these things in your Son's name. Amen. Worship team, would you come? Through?